From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Amateur investors sent the stock of retailer GameStop soaring, and they did so with the help of an app that itself gamifies investing. While Robinhood may democratize access to the markets, it also comes with pitfalls. What can everyday investors learn from this episode? And does it mark a sea change for Wall Street? We'll speak with finance experts at CU and DU. Then, a major bill to protect public lands across the West that's been in limbo for decades may now have its best shot. We're hopeful that all of those stars will be aligned and it'll make it all the way through the process, but there's nothing ever guaranteed in legislation. Later, break out a cake and put 150 candles on it for Colorado Springs. We'll delve into the city's sesquicentennial history. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Wall Street's been in a tizzy. Last week, the gaming retailer GameStop saw a huge surge in its stock price thanks to a swarm of amateur investors. That surge vexed Wall Street hedge funds, which bet the stock would go down. So what does this populist streak of investing mean for the future of the stock market? And does it mirror what the country is seeing in politics? Chris Hewen is an associate professor of finance at the University of Denver. Chris, welcome to the program. Good morning. And Tony Cookson has that same title at CU Boulder. Hi, Tony. Hi. Thanks for having us. Chris, many of these amateur online investors accused hedge funds of making a stupid bet when they shorted GameStop stock. Were they right? Well, GameStop has been a really interesting company. It's uh, had a stock price of about $60 back in 2013. It fell to four dollars um in 2020 it's a retailer um that is really struggling as most retailers are right now and hedge funds have indeed been betting against the stock or short selling the stock because it has a very troubled outlook um but in january we saw an incredible rise in the the stock price uh gamestop stock was up uh, about 1,600% just in January alone. Um, I think that the price is wildly disconnected with the true value of the company. And that's really troubling for those of us who want to see trust in financial markets. And you see a disparity between that skyrocketing price and the business model, which is a bricks and mortar business model at a time when people are buying games online, if they're buying games. Indeed. The, the traditional model of, of gaming used to be that you would go in and buy a CD or a game cartridge from a retail store. And now gaming consoles are being sold without the ability to even put a CD in there. Um, people are downloading their games via the internet. Mm -hmm. Some platforms like Amazon and Google are selling subscriptions where you don't even have a gaming console. Uh, it's a very troubling market and is 
GameStop going to be able to transition? They've got around 5,000 stores. It's a huge number of stores. And uh, they're going up against organizations like Microsoft, who wants to be sort of the Netflix of gaming. Hmm. Um, I, I tend to think that Microsoft is going to have a better chance of succeeding in that environment than a struggling retailer. I do want to note that GameStop stock dropped 60% on Tuesday. It's lost more than 70% of its value since Friday. Tony, how did these amateur investors decide that GameStop was somehow being undervalued in spite of all we just heard from Chris? Well, you know, I think um, like amateur investors often have uh, a variety of uh, idiosyncratic ideas. Um, my my own research uh, studies uh, some of this, uh, like some of the opinions that these types of investors display on social media platforms. Um, a lot of them, uh, in this in this instance, express their opinions on Reddit. But there are many of these different kind of social investor platforms uh, on the web. Uh, and uh, one characteristic of this uh, is that uh, people tend to seek out information that confirms uh, their prior beliefs. Uh, so some folks uh, would uh, came came in and thought, you know, game the gaming market is just going to boom, uh, and uh, sought information or spins on the news that uh, that confirmed that, uh, and and then just. Uh, Really, this is what's known as an echo chamber, where mm. your information sources reinforce your uh, predispositions about various beliefs. Uh, and what we're finding, actually, in our research is that people seem to do this uh, on these social investor platforms in investment context where they can lose a lot of money. And we know that Reddit helped fuel this buying of GameStop. And you're saying that that became an online echo chamber. People started talking about the popularity of gaming and maybe they naturally thought GameStop was a a great investment. You called these idiosyncratic ideas. Uh, That's something that amateur investors are prone to that what you don't see from the sort of financial advisor that you'd ring up um, with trusted advice. So, so um, financial advisors uh, would have more of a perspective that's grounded in the business model, the competitive risks, like what Chris was discussing, right? So they would they would tend to evaluate the prospects of the company to generate cash flow. Um, they they wouldn't um, necessarily sort of develop uh, views that are disconnected from that. Um, it seems like uh, this particular incident is a pretty good example of this, uh, but there, we're, we're finding that it's pretty systematic uh, and actually drives a lot of daily trading volume in markets. Uh, and, and also we find that on average, this tends to lose people a, a lot of money. Um, so what's actually distinctive about this event is that at least for some of the retail investors, they seem to have done pretty well with this particular incident um, where they wrote it from say $4 up to its highs above $400 uh, per share. Uh, there's, there's a question of whether these retail investors on average were doing well with this. I mean, people who bought sort of near the peak are now down, as you said, seven, more than 70%. Uh, and that's, uh, that's just in the span of a week. Uh, and so like this, it's pretty, uh, uh, pretty dangerous. And actually from what we know for like 20 years of research on individual investors, uh, is that this is not a good proposition for the, uh, the individual investor. 
So the the long view is that these kinds of decisions are not lucrative, uh, despite the fact that people may look at the GameStop stock and think, gosh, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, but I, I, I do want to talk about the the sort of populist aspect of this. There is a sense for sure that has emerged, Chris, that Wall Street is for the elite, that people don't feel that uh, they have a place in Wall Street. And this was an example of the little guy getting back, uh, being in, in a way their own hedge fund. Can, can you reflect on that for us? And indeed, I think that the smaller investors have won a battle against some of these hedge funds who suffered tremendous losses betting against uh, some of these companies. I don't think that they're going to win the war. And the reason why is because if you have a mispriced asset where the market price doesn't reflect the true value of the, the company or the asset being traded, you're, you're going to have no end of people and investors coming in to try and eliminate that discrepancy through trading. So um, it, it's, it's a little troubling that the little the little small investors think that they're going to win against Wall Street. Um, I, I do like the fact that people are interested in investing and trying to take advantage of low-cost platforms that don't charge them to trade. I, I think that this is a positive uh, view, but I don't think they're really going to stick it to hedge funds like they think they, they really are. Um, and the whole phrase hedge fund, I have to say it's a misnomer. Um, to hedge means to sort of reduce the risk associated with something. And hedge funds are really just smaller, medium-sized investment companies that um, you know do different types of in investing strategies, not necessarily hedging. So I don't think that there's anything inherently good or bad about hedge funds or uh, bad about Wall Street. There's plenty of things that I wish that they'd focus on, but I don't see any real good coming out of uh, you know, some of these Reddit forums, unfortunately. It, it may be bad financial advice for individual investors. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I am joined by two professors of finance, Chris Hewen of the University of Denver, Tony Cookson from CU, to talk about what this GameStop episode might tell us about the market, about investors these days. And uh, Tony, you heard Chris there uh, see some positives in this, in apps like Robinhood, in the idea that there might be more interest in investment. Uh, would you care to reflect on that? Uh, cer certainly. I mean, I think there, there are kind of two issues uh, that I think we're pretty well aware of as, uh, as finance people. Uh, one is that there's a great disengagement with finance, uh, investing, um, hopefully investing in diversified portfolios. Um, and the, the other one is, which is kind of more manifest here, uh, is that people uh, seem to, when they actually actively engage with finance, uh, do kind of weird uh, idiosyncratic stock picking things, which are definitively not what we would uh, what we would recommend. Um, and so they're kind of, I mean, we we would, I think most, I think most finance uh, oriented people would like to see people be more engaged with uh, investing, uh, but with disciplined investing that uh, they takes a diversified approach. I'm very curious, um, what are some of the other idiosyncratic ideas? You've made reference to this several times. It's your area of research. Mm -hmm. What are other 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a myth or if it's a misconception that uh, get lodged in people's minds and lead them perhaps to make decisions that are against their financial interest. Uh, so, I mean, one... I mean, one sort of view uh, that's uh, that's potentially misguided is that you can watch like the trends in the market uh, and uh, and use use the trends uh, and ride those trends in order to uh, in order to make profit. Uh, so this is uh, this is broadly a type of uh, investing called technical analysis, uh, where where people sort of view that there's that there's information in the way that the prices are moving, um, and uh, but this is this is something that like classic finance theory typically dispels when you think of like oh. the foundation of modern finance a lot of like what we think of is uh wh- what is this sort of information content of where the prices are going uh there's not there's not much information content in sort of what happened in the past uh because i ideally like the information's already been impounded into the uh, into the prices so a lot of the narratives that you're seeing on these forums are looking at things like look there's momentum uh, there's this pattern uh, that would then indicate uh, one uh, sort of one set of things and the problem is that there's so much subjectivity in this uh, that you can basically motivate any conclusion uh, that you you would like to, and so you, you basically get this kind of mutual reinforcing uh, sort of set of things where you can basically just support any opinion about any stock almost at any time. Yeah, I I agree with that. And one of the things that that concerns me is how misunderstood short selling is. I've done research uh, on the informativeness of short selling activity. And what you find on average is that stocks that are highly shorted, in other words, investors are making bets that the price will decline, these stocks do tend to decline more than average in the future. Now, when you look at what's being thrown out there on Reddit, people are saying, well, if there's a high level of short interest, let's buy the stock and push it up. But on average, that is a losing strategy. And we've we've studied this very extensively and shown over decades that that doesn't look work very well. It may work in the case of one stock like GameStop, but on average, that's a bad bet for investors. Is this a gamifying of investing, Chris? And, and you know, naturally, people know there's risk involved, but, you know, there's risk involved and not necessarily high payoffs and buying a lottery ticket either. Right. I'm, I'm very worried about the gamification associated with this. And if you just think about what it takes to open an account with Robinhood, uh, you can download the app, uh, put in some basic information, link it to your checking account, and you can be trading with literally within a couple of minutes. Uh, my concerns are that the disclosures are minimal, that Robinhood automatically opens up a margin account for people, which lets them borrow against their holdings. And that's pretty risky. Uh, if you open an account, you may get a bonus that shows up as a scratch-off lottery ticket where you rub your finger over your phone to get it. Um, they have confetti that falls down when you, you make a trade. Um, it's It sounds fun, and I don't want to ban it, but I'm really worried that the individual investor uh, is, is not going to take this with the seriousness and the difficulty that 
investing really should be taken with. Yeah, and one, and one thing to add to that uh, is that, uh, I mean, to equate this to gambling uh, somehow normalizes it. Um, one, um, investing is not gambling. And if you treat it like gambling uh, and uh, you, uh, research actually has actually looked at the, the, difference between sort of gambling losses versus uh, versus losses in the stock market when you're sort of gamifying and you see that people actually lose substantially more uh, than from from investing as gambling uh, than they would lose say in a actual casino gambling or lottery gambling oh. context Chris just briefly do you think this is a reflection of our politics at the moment that the sort of populist movement in, in just a few seconds? I, I do think it is somewhat representative of the populist movement, and it, it also may be associated with the pandemic. People are, are stuck at home, and they're perhaps bored, and you know want to use their apps. Um, but you know, this is very much associated with the case-shaped um, recovery that we've experienced, where wealthy people have been able to work from home more. They're suffering less losses in, of income. And many people with lower incomes, they're having to go into work. They're, uh, you know, having a real tough time with it. So I'm not surprised that we would see something like this during the current economic situation. Mm. Matched with the echo chamber you talked about earlier that social media can create, which is also reflected in our politics. Fascinating conversation. Thank you, gentlemen. Chris Hewen, finance professor, co-director of the Marsico Investment Center at the University of Denver. Tony Cookson, also a finance professor and co-director of the Center for Research on Consumer Financial Decision-Making at CU Boulder. Vast acreages of federal land in Colorado could be under new protections by the end of the year. The state's Democratic members of Congress are trying again to pass a massive public lands bill known as the CORE Act. CPR's Caitlin Kim has been tracking the legislation since its unsuccessful introduction in the last Congress. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Ryan. And let's start with the land itself, some 400,000 acres. What all is included in the CORE Act? Well, so they created the CORE Act by putting together four bills that they've been trying to get through Congress separately for over a decade. It's the Continental Divide Recreation, Wilderness, and Camp Hale Legacy Act, the Thompson Divide Withdrawal and Protection Act, the San Juan Mountains Wilderness Act, and the Curacanti National Recreation Area Boundary Establishment Act. And there are a variety of safeguards within those four. You know, you're talking about like 73,000 acres of new wilderness area, about 80,000 acres of new recreation and conservation management area. You know, that would preserve existing outdoor uses from hunting to mountain biking, prohibitions on new oil and gas development, and establishing a first-of-its-kind national historic landscape at Camp Hale. Uh, Camp Hale, where the skiing soldiers of World War II trained. Out of all of that, what are the most controversial proposals in the package? Well, you know, concerns were raised by the Trump administration over the potential land use restrictions like limitations on motorized activities. The Bureau of Land Management under the Trump administration had raised concerns about restrictions on mining and mineral development on some of the lands. That's most likely in reference to the Thompson Divide. The bill is sponsored by Boulder Democratic Representative Joe Neguse and both of Colorado's U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper. What are they saying about the core act? Yeah. 
you know, they're liking their chances this time. Um, Hickenlooper will sit on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which will be key to getting this passed. Nagoose got it through the House a couple of times as a standalone bill attached to a defense bill. It just never got through the Senate. And Democrats now control both chambers. So Bennett likes the chances. So taken together, that means we have an historic opportunity in front of us to pass the CORE Act this Congress this year. And we're going to do everything we can to get it done. Does the bill have any Republican support, though? (laughs) Within the Colorado congressional delegation? No. Um, Last Congress, the Republicans did not support the bill. And I don't see that changing this Congress. But on the ground in Colorado, it's a different story. County commissioners, both Democrats and Republicans, that are affected by the bill support it. And as Nagoose points out, ultimately, it's the people from these communities that that are the driving force behind the bill. It is clear that the CORE Act was written by Coloradans for Colorado, and it truly is the result of careful collaboration and consultation over a decade of work. Why hasn't it gone anywhere before? You know, it takes a lot of time to get a bill through Congress. That said, Republicans had been in control of the House and then the Senate. And this is the first time in years that Democrats have controlled both as well as the White House. So with Senator Craig Gardner and Donald Trump both replaced by Democrats, it does sound like this bill has a fairly good chance of passing this time, huh? Yeah, you know, the lawmakers are optimistic. You know, even the people who have been working on this bill um, like the chances. Mark Pearson with the San Juan Citizens Alliance, you know, he's they've been working on the San Juan Mountains part of this bill, is hopeful that all the stars will finally align. And Bill Fales, a rancher who's worked on the Thompson Divide portion, says, you know, He's excited, but he's not popping the champagne yet. I don't count my calves until I have sold them. You know, things can always happen. So we're just hoping it'll get it across the finish line. Has the bill changed at all between what was introduced in the last Congress and this current version of the CORE Act? You know, yes, there have been some small tweaks, you know, confirming grazing rights in the Thompson Divide, improving the water rights language in the bill. You know, these are mainly from amendments that were accepted when the bill passed in the House, as well as some additional community input. But for the most part, it's unchanged from last Congress. You reflected on how slowly Congress can move, and Democrats have a lot of priorities along with an upcoming impeachment trial. Of course, they are trying to get lots of things done for a new administration. Any idea how long it might take for the CORE Act to go through the process? <laughs> Let me consult my Congress magic eight ball and I'll get back to you. <laughs> um, you know, as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of competing priorities, COVID relief, immigration reform, not to mention just getting Biden's cabinet all confirmed, which still hasn't happened. And as you mentioned, the Senate will have part of its time taken with an impeachment trial starting next week. You know, so it, it, they've got a very busy schedule in the next couple of months. And if they do follow the traditional path of hearings, committee vote, and then floor vote, it would take at least a couple of months for CORE to advance. But there's also this option of holding on to the bill and packaging it into this even larger public lands bill. And that's something that Congress tends to do to get like a lot of bills Mm -hmm. like this, just put them all together. And I think one other star that is aligning and might bode well for passage this year, though, is that the Biden administration is focused on and has a climate agenda. And this public lands bill will fit into that well. As part of a climate change plan. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim talking about the CORE Act, the big public lands bill Colorado Democrats recently reintroduced in Congress back in the next half hour on CPR News.
As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state, and CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. A letter predicted the founding of Colorado Springs. That letter was written a full two years before the Springs came into existence. And it's just one of the stories we'll hear now as Colorado's second largest city celebrates its sesquicentennial. That means it's turning 150 this year. Matt Mayberry directs the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, which is celebrating the anniversary, displaying everything from letters to pieces of clothing and technology. And Matt, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about this letter and this prescient letter and who wrote it. The letter was written by city founder William Jackson Palmer, who was uh, then working for the Kansas and Pacific Railroad. He was out in front of the railroad construction, surveying and buying land. Um, During a wagon ride on his way to Denver, he stopped in Garden of the Gods and bathed in Fountain Creek and and sampled the nearby mineral spring water. And he wrote a letter to his then fiancée, Queen, who is back east. Um, And part of the letter says that um, he he creates a a great visual image of of his experience here at the base of Pikes Peak, saying that near here are the finest springs of soda and the most enticing scenery. Uh, I'm sure there will be a famous resort town once the railroad reaches Denver. And so it's it's very prescient, as you say, that um, in 1869, two full years before he uh, founds the town, he predicts uh, what would what would happen here um, just through his, his own ability to envision the potential for this location. Um, and he envisioned that potential uh, against some advice that he received from other folks because of the challenges this location had. But mm. um, we're fortunate that we live here because of his vision and, and the uh, creation of the town that he uh, accomplished in 1871. William Jackson Palmer. And so there was a clear founding vision for Colorado Springs, and this was not based on necessarily commerce or resource extraction. It, it really had to do more with scenery and climate. I mean, you mentioned Garden of the Gods right out of the gate. Uh, it, it was a magnet, too. Absolutely. And Colorado Springs is unusual because we know exactly when it was founded. We have its birth date of July 31st, 1871. We, we know the founding vision of Palmer to make Colorado Springs one of the, the best places in the West to build a home. Um, and we know that what they were really relying on was the setting, the scenery, and the wonderful climate here. Um, and it's, it's really that vision, that, that, that um, impetus for city building that, that marks so much of the rest of our history. And, and we're still living up to Palmer's vision, and Colorado Springs has recently and multiple times been named one of the most desirable places in the United States to live. So we're still trying to accomplish that vision. There is a statement at the entry to your gallery acknowledging the American Indian presence in the Pikes Peak region. Uh, The statement was written by Garrett Briggs and Cassandra Atencio, representatives of the Southern Ute tribe. 
Uh, more than 40 tribes still have a cultural connection to this region. What did they want to convey in that sort of opening statement? Well, it's an important reminder that this wasn't an empty slate, a blank plain that Colorado Springs was founded on. It was the home to many cultures, um, and we wanted to respect that tradition and to make sure, A, that that's conveyed in the exhibit itself, but also as a reminder that you know, those cultures are still here. We still engage with them. We we respect their traditions. We want to uh, use them so we can have the information so we can make wise decisions based on, on their feedback. And so it's the fact that there were people here before us, and those people are still here with us. And that their dreams might not have been realized in the way that William Jackson Palmer's were. Well, sure. And that, you know, that the important traditional locations for these tribes are still here. We're we're living among them, Garden of the Gods and Pikes Peak. And we need to respect that tradition and and do a a good job, a better job of, of reminding people of these important cultural roots that we have um, right around us, all around us. Among the migrants originally attracted to Colorado Springs and the Pikes Peak region were people chasing the cure for consumption, uh, otherwise known as tuberculosis. And then eventually the business of sanitariums takes hold. You know, was there any evidence ever that you know, good climate, dry climate would help a bacterial infection? Well, the the reports that were released by the Modern Woodman of America Sanatorium um, or Glockner Sanatorium, uh, those reports still survive. And traditionally, what they seem to report is about a 60% cure rate, and I'm using cure in quotes. Um, part of it had to do with the fact that they were under professional care. Part of it had to do that they were being fed very well, which was a major part of the treatment here. Um, And so I think there was some recovery. Um, And, uh, you know, there were people that got better. Um, Was the disease cured? Likely not. Um, And it really didn't. That transition from that sanatorium community um, era didn't really happen until medical intervention, intervention, chemical intervention Mm. happened around World War II. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, this year, Colorado Springs is celebrating its sesquicentennial, its 150th birthday. We are talking about the fascinating history that has led to what Colorado Springs is today. And, you know, it, it seems to me that Colorado Springs reinvents itself a lot Matt Mayberry, and its branding as an Olympic training city, a military city, a destination for outdoor recreation, a sort of evangelical mecca. What what do you make of that? Well, I have this theory, and reinvention is the exact right word, that every 20 years, Colorado Springs reinvents itself. Part of that, I believe, has to do with the founding vision where Colorado Springs was not established because of a unique Um, economic driver, the way Pueblo has steel mills, or Denver has state government, or Cripple Creek had gold mining. We had a a 
concept more than we had an economy. Mm. And so that means that we have to figure out how to, you know, create jobs, create business, you know, that, that will allow people to live in this really remarkable place. And so we have to re reconceive this place um, on a fairly regular basis. And so we, we change from a resort town that Palmer created in 1871 to become a destination for um, gold processing plants when Cripple Creek Gold is discovered in 1891. Um, we become a destination, as you mentioned, for tuberculosis sanatoriums uh, at the turn of the century. We become a film capital with Alexander Film, an aviation uh, founding here in the 1920s. And actually, we become a military community. Matt, right, we're gonna, going and going, going. we're going to stop there because uh, I want to focus on the idea that film actually led to Colorado Springs becoming a military installation. You, you have to expound on that. It was an aha moment for me. Absolutely. In the 1920s, we recruited um, Alexander Film, which was started in the Northwest, um, moved to the Denver metro area, was looking for more land, and they, they saw Colorado Springs as a place where they could relocate. And so the film company came here in the 1920s, they were producing commercial films, so films about commercial products that were played in movie theaters all over the country. Um, distribution was a major part of their business model, and the only way they had to distribute these films was by railroad. That was slow and inefficient and, and costly. They decided airplanes, you know, new technology offered new opportunities for them. So they created their own airplane wing, so to speak, of the business. Um, and built uh, their own planes that could fly these products, these films around the country. So uh, Alexander Film and Aviation, which sounds like a strange combination of businesses, um, becomes a major enterprise in Colorado Springs, still has its influences in Colorado Springs today because of our continued um, connection to the aerospace industry. And, uh, of course, we think of... Uh, the founding of the military base, Camp Carson, now Fort Carson, um, and the many installations, military installations in that area. And it it owes some of its provenance to commercial films. Uh, speaking of the military connection here, one of the uh, items you have in the show, in fact, I think it's the first one you collected, is a jacket. And uh, to whom did this jacket belong? Yeah, it's a Tuskegee Airman's jacket belonging to a gentleman named Frank Macon, who just passed away a few weeks ago, uh, sadly. Um, he had a dream as a child of, of flight, of aviation. Um, he worked and, and became a, a licensed pilot here in Colorado Springs. But when World War II broke out, he uh, had the opportunity to go and train as a Tuskegee Airman. And it was the first object um, for this exhibit of 150 objects that we collected intentionally for this exhibit to tell that specific story of African-American history uh, of dreams and how those dreams can be fulfilled. Another artifact that you have on display speaks to the chapter of Colorado Springs history. Again, speaking of reinvention, uh, when the area was dubbed Silicon Mountain, uh, and the object you have is an oscilloscope. Can you explain the significance of that? <laughs> 
Sure. Uh, so one of the most notable early high-tech industries that came to Colorado Springs, and we had many uh, that ultimately relocated here in the post-war years, was Hewlett-Packard. Uh, they selected Colorado Springs again because of the availability of land, the availability of a workforce. Um, and so we have in the collection one of their original early oscilloscopes, a big kind of uh, chunky bo- metal box, <laughs> Um, and a contemporary piece that does the same thing in a much more stylistic way. So people can actually see how their voice turns into a frequency. Um, And Hewlett-Packard is so important because in order to get a workforce, they asked that we have a university here to help feed their workforce. And it was that encouragement from Hewlett-Packard that resulted in the creation of the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, a major institution and part of our community today. I wonder as we wrap up if you might help me draw a connection. So I I think of the moniker for Colorado Springs as Olympic City, USA. There's a big state-of-the-art Olympic training facility, more than 10,000 athletes, Olympians, Paralympians, and hopefuls flock to every year. Uh, In addition, 23 Olympic national governing bodies are headquartered in the Springs. Uh, Of course, the new Olympic Museum opened near downtown last year. And, you know, I I think of athletes as at the top of their their game, as at the top of, of fitness, do you think that that relates to that early perception of Colorado Springs as a health and wellness destination? I think that's exactly right. As a place where not only just health and wellness and, and the unique opportunity we have to spend time outdoors here, the, the trail system that we have, the, you know, the Manitou incline, which people test themselves against every day. Even this idea of climbing Pike's Peak and reaching the summit, something that Zebulon Pike himself couldn't do. Um, we always seem to be testing ourselves against the environment in which we live. In some ways, that's what Palmer, you know, that was what his vision was, is that we create a place in a challenging but uniquely beautiful location where we can challenge ourselves. And the Olympic movement coming here in the 1970s is just one of those reinventions. But I do think it connects very well to our history and our traditions. Matt, there's so much more history we could go into. Thanks for scratching the surface with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Matt Mayberry directs the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum, which hosts the new exhibition COS at 150. There are timed slots to manage crowds and keep people safe as Colorado Springs celebrates its sesquicentennial. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lowe. Aging can be confusing and isolating. It can also be hard to talk about. But CPR's Joanne Allen talks about it a lot. On her podcast, Been There, Done That, she shares stories of the baby boom generation. Tonight, she's co-hosting a national call-in show where people over 60 are invited to share what their lives are like right now and what's changed for them about aging during the past year. Joanne is leading that conversation with Anna Sale, host of WNYC's podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Joanne and Anna, glad to have you here ahead of the big night. Oh, thank you. We're so glad to be here. Hey, Anna. Avery. Nice to talk to you again. Hey, Joanne. Always good to talk to you. 
Anna, you don't shy away from hard conversations on your show. That's the point of the name Death, Sex, and Money. But over the years, a number of listeners have said they want to hear more about getting older. Here's Ayana Lowe. She's 64 and lives in New York City. My identity is shifting as I age, and I want more conversation about getting older. The last taboo is ageism. Please start talking about it, Miss Sale. As the host of a show where you talk about taboos, why is aging particularly hard to talk about? Well, you know, I think that we the way we talk about aging in this country is we lump older people together. We use words like senior citizen, the elderly, older people. You know, you've heard this a lot during the pandemic. Uh, But we don't actually say to one person that we're talking to, hey, What's going on? How do you feel about where you are in life now that you're over 65 or 75 or 85? So I think for a lot of people who are aging, there's this sense of like, uh, I would like to talk about what I'm going through. And that initial email from a listener came in. uh, The subject line was, Sale doesn't understand anything about aging. <laughs> and I am I am 40, so I understand a little bit about aging. But I got her point, which was she wanted to hear conversations between people who were older to compare notes a little bit. Um, so so I have loved working on this with Joanne, this project where it's allowed us uh, to listen in on, on the conversations she's had with some of our older listeners. And Joanne, I want to get your perspective. You're 67. You spend a lot of time talking with baby boomers for your podcast. What's your take on why aging is hard to discuss? I think it's been something that's uh, how we've seen aging as as a negative thing because our bodies definitely do start to break down. We slow down. Um, we start thinking about retirement. We make sure that our health care is all together. But there hasn't been in this country, I think, a real reverence for our elders. Now, when I became a baby boomer, when I actually applied for Medicare, I started to think about how do I feel about getting older? But I I wanted to also know how did other people feel about getting older? What were some of the things they were facing? Because, I mean, my life is my life and it doesn't uh, cover all bases in terms of the experiences we have. So I wanted to hear from other people. I was curious to know what they were feeling about getting older. It goes back to what Anna was saying, that there's not just one monolith of people over 60. There are as many experiences as there are people. This national call-in show that the two of you are co-hosting, you already hinted at this. This is just your latest collaboration. Last year, Anna, you interviewed Joanne on your podcast about her own experiences of getting older. Earlier this month, Joanne co-hosted an episode of Death, Sex, and Money, where she interviewed folks over 60 Why did you decide to collaborate on these conversations? You already spoke about this a little bit, Anna, but what I want to hear more about why collaborating is so important here. Well, I listened to what Joanne was doing on her show, Been There, Done That, and thought, I want to work with this person. I I love what she's doing. Joanne has this style of interviewing where she's very curious and also very direct. So if something doesn't sort of like jive with how she sees things, she's going to tell you. And then you get these like very interesting moments of contrast. And, and so we reached out to Joanne, we said, will you will you have some of these conversations with some of our listeners? And and it's been, it's been great. Joanne, what's the collaboration like for you? Oh, it's been fabulous. I mean, I, I have learned a lot in terms of podcasting, 
just in the few months that I've been working with death, sex, and money. Um, I saw Anna Sale uh, back in 2016 at a podcasting convention in in Chicago, and uh, she was explaining what she was doing and how she was doing it, and this whole whole which really isn't a new world of podcasting, but is you know relatively new world of podcasting. And I listened to the pointers that she gave, and I thought, oh, I can do that. So I set out to start my own podcast, and as a result, I was really, really excited when Anna's people got a hold of me because Anna has people. Anyway, <laughs> I was really excited to, to uh, get a call from one of her producers asking if I'd be willing to talk to older people. And that's exactly where I'm at right now is talking and having conversations with people in my age group because um, they have so much to say. They've lived experiences that because of their age, you know, they're unique. Each generation is unique. And I just wanted to hear more of those lived experiences. Well, we'll come back to the call-in show in just a moment. I want to talk a little bit more about the episode of Death, Sex, and Money that you co-hosted, Joanne. You interviewed people in their 60s and 70s. And this moment with Fran Shalin goes back to what we were saying about how hard it can be to talk about aging. She's a 63-year-old hospice chaplain who lives in Los Angeles. How do you talk to your kids about aging? Um, they're in their 20s and my son is in, uh, they're both in, in, you know, good health. He, I can see that when I talk to him about my aging and he's upset because his grandmother isn't doing well and it, you know, he keeps saying, you know, she should be doing this. She should be doing that. Like, honey. This is what aging does. And it's going to do it to me at some point. And he was horrified, you know, no, it's <laughs> so you got to drop this stuff in little drops on your kids. You know, um, I tell them the things I'm doing to take care of myself. You know, uh, my grandmother lived with us when I was growing up. My mom lives with us. Um, you know, part of it is showing look, this is how we do it in this family. Now, is he going to kick me to the curb? I'm not sure. Um, but, but you're not sure. What do you mean? You're not sure. Of course, he's going to kick you to the curb. Joanne, how do you talk with the people who are close to you about aging? Um, I, gosh, that's a good question, Avery. How do I talk to people close to me about aging? I don't know if I really hold conversations about aging with my closest friends. No, I take that back. Those who are my age, um, we are always talking about things that we like about being older, but we also talk about some of the negative things about being older. And that's usually has to do with physical stuff. You know, my knees no longer work well, or I can't stay up as late as I used to, or two glasses of wine makes me tired. You know, that that kind of stuff. But I don't think I've actually, wow, Avery, you asked me a question here. <laughs> I don't think that I've actually talked a lot about aging with my closest friends. I may have talked about it more with some of the subjects uh, that we interviewed on death, sex, and money. Why do you think yeah. that is? Interesting. That is, I, I don't know. I think Anna can explain. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know why. God, that is something I have to start doing. Well, you're going to be talking with a lot of people nationally. So let's get back to that national call-in show. Anna, what is something that you want people to call in and share? You know, I really want to hear about what people are thinking about after, you know, we're coming up on a year of this experience, this shared experience of pandemic in which older people were particularly physically vulnerable. So I want to hear what people have been reflecting on. I want to hear what this time is making them feel excited about for the rest of their lives, have, having had a little time to think about what they want to make of their the rest of their lives, um, and also what's been hard and what have been the ways they've had to remake their support systems as all of our you know, communities and our society has gone through such a big shift. And Joanne, oh, go ahead. It's, a, it's an inter, we're calling it an intergenerational conversation, meaning we want to hear mostly from older people, but we'd also like to hear from younger people and how they are affected. As Fran was talking about her son, you know, how are they affected by seeing someone age? I know when I watched my parents age, it, it, it affected me, but I don't know quite how, because I didn't talk about it. Nobody talked about it, but it did affect me when I saw my mom, you know, losing more hair or my, my dad moving slower. It, it, but we didn't talk about it. We just mm -hmm. let it go. It's, he's getting older, that kind of thing. Right, because aging is part of all of our lives right now, no matter how old we are. Well, Anna and Joanne, Absolutely. thank you so much for joining us and good luck on the show tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Avery. I'll see you later. Joanne Allen is CPR's All Things Considered host, and she has a podcast, Been There, Done That, which shares stories of the baby boom generation. Anna Sale hosts WNYC's podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. And Joanne and Anna host a national call-in show this evening from 6 to 8. They invite people 60 and older to share what their lives are like right now and what's changed for them about aging during the past year. It's intergenerational, too, as you heard. Visit CPR.org for details. That's our show for today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. <laughs>